It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is the podcast with the unpopular opinion that progressive centre-left politics has a lot to offer the modern world. The local government association Labour Group conference takes place this weekend. Jeremy Corbyn and Andrew Gwynn are headline speakers, along with local government's very own Nick Forbes, who leads the Labour councillors and is also leader of Newcastle City Council. Labour's relationship with local government has been brought into focus as the conference approaches, with cases of deselections hitting the news and the party's National Executive Committee attempting to change council policy in Haringey. This comes ahead of local elections in May when London councils are among those facing the ballot box. So, what are the big challenges for local government this year? I'm Connor Pope, Deputy Editor of Progress, and I'm joined by Richard Angel, Director of Progress. Today's show, we'll be speaking to leader of Southwark Council Peter John and Sarah Hayward, who recently stood down after five years as leader of Camden Council. Last week, a private member's bill put forward by crossbench peer Nuala Alone passed its second reading in the House of Lords. The bill is around conscientious objections on medical activities. In other words, if a patient wants a procedure that the doctor or nurse is not prepared to do for religious reasons, the practitioner can refuse to do it and refuse to refer the patient on to someone who will. If made law, this could have enormous repercussions on those seeking abortions or IVF treatment. So what are the chances of getting it through and what do you make of it? Sarah Hayward, can I start with you? Thank you, Connor. Hopefully the chances of it getting through are slim and without getting into arcane Lord's procedure, that looks the most likely outcome. Although I do have my fingers crossed where the very unrepresentative and unelected House of Lords (laughs) (laughs) uh, comes to mind. What I make of it, well, I already oppose the existing law. I, I don't think doctors should be able to refuse medical treatment on the grounds of what's called conscientious objection, but I don't think there's anything conscientious about it. And this is a worry and creep into a wide range of areas, not just medical provision, that could leave women very, very vulnerable. I had an experience when I was at university, I needed the morning after pill, that was before it was available over the counter. And the on-call doctor at the university practice over a bank holiday weekend refused to provide contraception to people. And I needed it and I had to take three hours out of my revision for my exams that year to go 
halfway across the city to a book advisory clinic to get it. So I've had direct experience of this discrimination. It is nothing but gender discrimination. Mm. And the wide impact of this backbench bill will be effectively gender discrimination. As I said, it's not conscientious. It's not like a debate like going to war where there is always a right and wrong answer. This is about 50% of the population having access to safe medical care in a timely fashion. And we need to defend that. Richard, Sarah mentioned the arcane nature of the House of Lords here. So how, how has it got this far? So this uh, crossbench peer is entitled to put forward a private members bill, not dissimilar to the process of private members bills in the Commons. But one of the differences in the Lords is that you don't restrict the time normally that peers have to discuss matters or the amount of speakers they have. And normally, therefore, it will go through on a second reading to a committee stage. The difference with this one is we've got a two-year parliament because Theresa May hasn't really got an agenda beyond Brexit, so it's pushed everything back and we've got the kind of longest time till the next Queen's speech possible, which means there will be time for this to get a committee hearing, which of course in the Lords is done on the floor of the House, unlike in the Commons. And so this will get more time than a private member's bill would otherwise get. And I think it does mean that therefore we need to organise to get this kicked out. It can't just be one of those things that we say, oh, that's clearly wrong and therefore won't happen. This is one where progressives can't sit out this debate. And so what are the chances of it getting much further, do you think? I think they're unlikely because the numbers in the House of Lords, while there is the Conservatives are the biggest grouping, and this does normally kind of excite people from the political right rather than the political left. Labour isn't that far behind and the Liberal Democrats have 100 peers from their time in the coalition government and quite a lot of crossbenchers I think would be well-informed people who wouldn't want to go down this route anyway, many of which will be take a role in hospital governance around the country etc. So I think it is unlikely it would go forward but I don't think we can assume that that will happen without some effort being put in by progressives to protect, as uh, Sarah said, not only a woman's right to choose but a woman and a couple's right to seek IVF, to seek emergency contraception. But this principle, if it goes through, people could withdraw the opportunity to provide a civil partnership or a same-sex marriage, or some of the services that might go with that adoption to couples they might not approve. I mean, this really could have quite wide-ranging effects if you're able to find some kind of conscientious reason. So would this be a rollback of a lot of the stuff that came through of the um, Equality Act in 2010? Is that is that what this... In, in one go, it reverse a number of legislation that was brought in by the last Labour government, and to be fair, under David Cameron. And I think this is something that we should be vigilant about. Can we kind of put this in a wider context? Because um, Stella Creasy's amendment that passed last year about access by Northern Irish women to abortion, and then obviously the, the big repeal the 8th referendum happening in the Republic of Ireland this year, is generally society moving into a more liberal position on abortion? And would this be a kind of big step back on that? I don't think we can take that for granted. We've seen all over Europe increasing movements to try and limit a women's right to choose, particularly. And although the have been, you know, fantastic votes in Ireland and Australia recently about gay marriage. I think, you know, I think we can't take that progress for granted. And we do know about these people that, you know, people who, for whom anti-abortion is their thing, they will spend every waking moment and every last breath they have opposing it and trying to deny that right to people. So I think we have to continue making the case and continue fighting for, for women's rights. And with Donald Trump in the White House, you know, the winds are potentially against us because he is going to, by hook or by crook, appoint anti-right-to-choose Supreme Court justices, not just at that top level, but at any other level. He can basically inform the judiciary of people who basically keep the kind of Mike Pence of this world happy 
rather than serve American women. So potentially the tide is against us. We know that when these things go to public debate, they often are polluted with horrific images, unnecessarily emotive language, whereas actually we're talking about, in this case, things that are legal in this country and should therefore be provided safely and efficiently to people who are other law-abiding citizens. I think what's really dangerous about the way this bill is phrased is it essentially creates bureaucratic blocks to a women's right to choose, which are quite low level. It's not like a totemic fight over a Supreme Court judge, which will grab news all around mm. the world. An individual functionary, and I don't mean to be dismissive, in a hospital can undermine a whole department if they hold a senior enough position by refusing to provide you know, line management support to nurses or booking appointments and, and what have you. And that will start to seep through the whole system. So a single individual could disable an entire hospital trust's ability to be able to provide these types of services. That's a really good point. There's an excellent piece by Estelle Hart upon the Progress website, which will be online on Tuesday. I do recommend checking that out. Next, Richard will be speaking to Peter John and then Sarah will be back with us to discuss local government after these messages. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Richard, I've heard a rumour that if people like the Progressive Bitten podcast, there's something that they can do to help us out. There is, Alison. Oh. People can subscribe themselves, they can rate our podcast wow. on iTunes, and they can leave a review. And that means that it not just gets to the audience that's already listening to the Progressive Britain podcast, but gets to other audiences. And Connor and I do a review show that comes out every Friday where we pick not just the best review, but the people who are engaging most with the podcast, who leave their review, that we give out a book, sometimes a mug, to the people who be engaging most. So we're keen to hear and make this a two-way conversation. So it's not just about audience participation. There's fancy gifts too. What more could you Amazing. want? This week, we're joined by Peter John, leader of the London Borough of Southwark. He joins us today 
ahead of the LGA Labour Group conference, which will be taking place up in Nottinghamshire at the weekend. Peter, you'll be attending that event. How does it normally work? What gets decided there? And what do you think will be on the agenda this week? Well, we're going to be um, addressed by Jeremy Corbyn. But I mean, really, I think the, the value of any conference... Richard is in meeting with colleagues, discussing what the challenges are we're all facing in local government at the moment, uh, and trying to talk about some of the solutions. And the challenges are considerable. The Tories have been plotting for the last eight years to take away the lion's share of the budget you get from central government to change the way that local business rates work. Sometimes that's helped in some places, but sometimes it really hasn't. But crucially, it means you're on your own in many ways in terms of the income that you get in and going forward. So how are Labour and local government facing those challenges? And what are the kind of interesting lessons that you're seeing from not just your council, but other councils around the country? Well, I mean, austerity, as you say, really has, you know, bitten into our budgets in a ferocious way. And whereas in the first few years, I was pretty relaxed about the impacts of austerity, because I thought, you know, probably was some fat in the system. I think we've got to a point now where that's no longer the case. I think in London, in truth, we're insulated far more than a lot of the rest of the country, because we are seeing a growth in business rates, we are seeing growth in council tax collection. So kind of we're making the most of the prosperity of our part of the world. What more can we do? I think we've got to carry on looking as we are at integration with the health service and really, you know, trying to be innovative in every way, in the ways in which we negotiate and renegotiate contracts in which we manage our services and looking for the most cost effective but efficient ways of providing services, whether that's in-house or out-house. So kind of it's really uh, looking at a whole suite of of ideas and, and, and responses. I think the thing that's been interesting for looking at us from an outsider is how robust Labour and local government has been, that there was lots of doom and gloom at various points, that whole councils would fall over or go bust, that this would be a total disaster for public services. But I think through a combination of hard work and ingenuity, Labour and local government seem to have kept the show on the road and in lots of places improved public services through a series of levels of reforms and not let the Tories just make our communities a victim. I think that's right. I mean, I think it has been pragmatism rooted deeply in our labour values. We've not been ideological about refusing to look outside for a best practice or where services might be provided more efficiently and effectively. But as I say, a pragmatic solution, always, as I say, based in our labour values. So the Labour Manifesto, which was you know really popular out there in the country, had the top line of ending austerity. But in reality, I think it's fair to say if I was sitting in your seat, provided very little for local government leaders in terms of real additional funds that might come in and change your balance sheet. Do you think this is something that's going to be addressed at this weekend's conference? Well, it'll probably be addressed by the local government leaders. I'm not sure it could be addressed by the party more widely, because I, I still think as a party, we have a problem with local government. We just don't value it sufficiently. And that's evident in oh so many ways. But always the focus is on the National Party, the Westminster Party, the Parliamentary Party, and you know, to hell with the rest of us who are actually in power and delivering and dealing with, you know, most of us billion pound budgets each. And I think that's regrettable. And until we as a party get our heads around that, nothing much is going to change. The last Labour government put a lot more money into local government than the current government obviously has, or the last two governments have. But crucially, didn't really give local government the control and the freedoms that they needed. So what we want is a Labour government to give us the money, 
the freedoms and the respect I think that local government is due. I think that really has to be top of the agenda and needs to be top of the manifesto. So what would that respect look like in terms of the party structures? How would you be treated differently if the party respected local government? Well, you know, the NEC has changed in recent months with the addition of three new CLP representatives, but we're still stuck at two local government representatives. So what, councillors just get two representatives? Uh, You know, there should be more. There should be more, you know, the, the, the balance of the voice at national level within our party structures is completely absent. And as I say, at the moment, it's Labour in local government, which is actually in power and can provide the lessons to, I think, to uh, other bits of the party. One Labour local authority that's asserting itself in the debate right now is Hammersmith and Fulham Council. They passed a motion asking the government to, quote, abandon any plans for a hard Brexit and give the British people a vote on whatever deal uh, they end up getting. Would you join with Steve Cowan, the leader in Hammersmith and Fulham and others, calling for a referendum on the terms when Theresa May comes back with a deal from Brexit? Well, I think there has to be... something which the British people say, you know, with confidence, okay, this is the deal that we understand now that we're getting. Uh, And whether that's through a general election or whether it's through another another referendum, there has to be something. I mean, at the moment, there is just such a great degree of uncertainty, unbelievable uncertainty. We're seeing at the moment the polls suggesting that people are getting more nervous about Brexit and the idea of Brexit. And the way in which the government is handling it, it has been so disastrous and cack-handed. You know, it's no wonder we're seeing those those figures move. You know, it feels to me that, that, you know, unless the government puts a really robust system in place to reassure the nation as a whole that the steps that they're taking are sensible. I mean, if you go back to considering when the Labour government was considering whether to go into the single currency or not and go to the euro, you know, Gordon set his series of, I don't know, seven tests or whatever. And I think unless the, you know, the current government can demonstrate to the British people, there'll be a series of tests that will be gone through before any change occurs in terms of our relationship with the EU, independently demonstrating, I, I, I think there has to be a second referendum in default of that robust challenge. So over the weekend, local government became a natural focus for the Labour Party. The debate in Haringey has been going on and the Labour Party NEC discussed without notice any paperwork or inviting the council in question in and resolved a couple of things, but mainly for some kind of mediation between the Labour group, the Labour councillors and the Labour leadership. You and others signed a letter to the NEC this week. Can you explain a little bit to our listeners what the letter was about, why it was brought forward and why you put your name to it? Well, there were two aspects to the letter. First, well, three aspects. They were, firstly, it was in the way that you described, completely inappropriate for the NEC to be discussing effectively a one-sided presentation of a topic, how you can form a judgment when you're hearing only one side and only one email from disgruntled councillors, I do not know. Secondly, the fact that the NEC then felt that it could interfere in a local issue, which a Labour administration had been... Been, uh, dealing with. And thirdly, I think the, the lack of respect comes back to this lack of respect point for local government, but the particular lack of respect it showed to Claire Cober, the leader of Haringey, who is also chair of London Councils, a very important Labour player. And I think the lack of respect which the NEC showed her by passing their motion last week was incredible, quite frankly. As I say, three worrying aspects. The first, the way in which it was done, what was done, and the lack of respect. And we need to say straight away to the NEC, this is not acceptable. This is not an acceptable relationship going forward. The NEC should be talking about how we get a Labour government into power. It shouldn't be picking apart and commenting and second-guessing 
where we have Labour in government, in local government, is my view. What is the kind of principle at stake here? Because it seems that you would want the like, NEC to have a view on Labour to have high standards. You want to make sure we've got, uh, we're all kind of running in a similar track in line with our values. What's the principle at stake? Well, I think it's the principle that, you know, this has been an issue in Harringay, which has been locally determined by an elected administration. And whether you like it or not, and we know there are lots of people who don't like it, whether you like it or not, the majority of Labour councillors in Harringay, the majority of councillors in Harringay still support the HDV and the administration is pursuing it and they can pursue it right through to the local elections in May. You know, there are democratic ways. If, if a, a, an administration loses its authority or loses its mandate or loses the support of its group, then there are ways in which that can be dealt with by votes of no confidence and removals and things like that. But that's dealt with locally doesn't need the NEC second-guessing what's going on in an elected administration. And I think what people out there, I think, will understand is that to not give anyone any notice, not have the council in question there, to not have the leadership's view uh, expressed directly from them. It's disgraceful. It's disgraceful. And there also seemed to be a difference between in the past where things might have happened in which the front bench might have a view as people who are shaping the public debate and have responsibility to guide the nation from the Chamber of the House of Commons or when we were in government from their government department. That is different to the administrative body of the party because, of course, councillors have a legal duty to their local area in which the Labour Party won't possibly know some of many of the things they've got to consider. That's right. I mean, I think if Jeremy had said to Andrew Grin, Andrew, go down to Harringay and see what you can do to help sort out the differences there and, and, and what are the council actually doing and, and why do so many people feel uncomfortable about it and see what you can mediate. I think if that had been the route, that would have been, I think, far less objectionable. You know, that would have been that working together, that cooperation between the parliamentary party and front bench and local government. And I think that would have been appropriate. But for the NEC to do it in the way in which it's been done, I just think is utterly inappropriate. So, Peter, you are coming to the end of two full terms, uh, eight years of running the London Borough of Southwark, which where you've had to deal with these considerable cuts that we talked about earlier. What do you think you'll be proud to say to your voters about those first eight years that you've had? And what will your offer be for a third term Labour government in Southwark? Well, I think the thing is that we've kept our promises. We promised back in 2010 that we'd introduce free healthy school meals for our school children, that we'd double recycling, that we would make every council home warm, dry and safe and we're the largest uh, council housing landlord in London. And we've delivered on that. Then in 2014, we said that we'd uh, you know, start to build 11,000 new council homes and we're well on the road to that. We said that we'd introduce free swim and gym use for our residents. And really crucially, we said that we would create 5,000 new jobs. The council would play a role in delivering 5,000 new jobs and 2,000 new apprenticeships. And again, we smashed the jobs target and we're well on the way on the apprenticeship target. And I think it's about that demonstrating that the investment and regeneration we're seeing in the borough is delivering positive, tangible benefits for people. New homes, new leisure offer, uh, and new jobs for people. 40,000 new jobs have been created in Southwark since 2010. I can't claim the credit for all of those, but I think I can claim the credit and we can claim the credit for creating the conditions in which those jobs were created. And that's what a Labour council should be about. And I think as we look beyond May, then a key part of our manifesto, again, is going to be looking at jobs. 
and that road to full employment. You know, if you want a job in Southwark, I don't think there's any reason why you shouldn't have one. So let's help those people who have been trouble getting into the job market, have faced some barriers, let's help them into work. And in terms of delivering on, you know, further pledges, it will be about carrying on investing in our infrastructure with the building of the Bakerloo Line extension, which we hope will happen on the Old Kent Road. And a concentration on the soft side of regeneration. We've seen a lot of it and it it gets people very excited. But improvements to people's public health, you know, we still have far too great, you know, health inequalities across our borough and we want to tackle those. So really going into some of the root causes of inequality in Southwark. There's a strand of opinion in the Labour Party that is pessimistic when there's a Tory government, that nothing can get better. But I think Labour and local government continually shows that if we take charge of our communities, refuse to let them to be victims of a Tory government, we can shape that world. Outside of London, what do you think are some of the examples that you've seen Labour councils do for that? Well, I mean, just someone like Sharon Taylor in Stevenage, just building you know, new council housing herself. You know, the pride... She's the district council leader as well. So exactly. That's I mean, truly amazing, you know, that kind of if, if you if, if she had the same resources as a London borough, you know, it, she would be knocking us all, you know, uh, <laughs> into that second or third, fourth place. And I think, obviously, we always look at Manchester and the great civic pride that uh, Richard Lees has helped create there and the great sense of identity and the great inward investment there. But, you know, I, I think you could look at any number of Labour local authorities, Crawley, Brighton, Liverpool, you know, our, our great cities and our great metropolitan areas, and also some of our great districts where Labour is truly making a difference. And that's why I think we should take pride in Labour and local government. And that's why I think as a party, we should do more to respect Labour in local government. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the Progressive Britain podcast. You've been Peter John, the leader of Southwark Council. Thank you for joining us. Now we're back with Sarah Hayward here, the former leader of Camden Council. Sarah, you stood down as leader last May, having done the job for five years. And uh, I think you're standing down as a councillor this May as well. You now describe yourself as a sort of recovering politician. How's the recovery going? It's going really well, actually. There's a little bit of tongue in cheek about that comment, obviously. I think what not being leader anymore allows me to do is have much more free reign over what I say and how I say it and and when I say it. You do have to be a bit careful. uh, And that's not, you know, putting a false front or anything, but you just have to think more about what you're saying and why you're saying it when you hold a position of such authority, because it does influence people. Um, for good or bad, whereas I can be, you know, much freer with what I think now, which is liberating. <laughs> On that note, you just listened to the uh, interview with uh, Peter John. What did you make of the kind of problems that he highlighted? What do you think, what problems that he mentioned do you think are really kind of important and across the board for councils? And uh, was there anything that he maybe missed off because he is standing for re-election this year. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I don't, on that point specifically, no, I don't think so. I think um, before I get into the meat of what he said, um, and because I can say this now without being self-congratulatory, our leaders in local government are absolute heroes and should be treated as such. You know, we have faced catastrophic cuts and, you know, massive policy changes to things like housing policy and what have you, which no Labour politician would ever want to do or ever want to deal with. And up and down the country, we have seen Labour councils led by amazing people still deliver um, policies and services that are absolutely true to our core Labour values. Um, And I just don't think it's recognised enough by the party. 
I want to ask you about something called the Preston model, which I think first was mentioned in The Economist a few months ago. And essentially, it's an idea that I think has been put forward by the um, leader's office about how they would run the country. And they were using Preston Council, Labour and Preston Council, as a model for this. What do you kind of make of that? What is it and what does it mean? And, and, and what are the uh, aspects of it? One of the other um, benefits of, uh, of recovering as a politician is I've got much more time to read more widely uh, these <laughs> days. I'm quite interested by the description of it as the, as the Preston model, because when I looked into the detail, really it's just what local Labour in local government um, is doing up and down the country. So you know, one of the most powerful cases for me for, for devolution of more powers to local government is that communities need different things at different times because we have different types of populations and, and different needs. But if you look at what's called you know, the Preston model, some of their local procurement that they're doing for example there are other you know there are other councils doing like that, doing that as well I did that as leader of, of Camden. You can go on Camden's website and look at our procurement policies and, and local procurement and local supply chains and local employment are absolutely embedded in services that we procure. And so what I, kind of change did that bring about, Sarah? It keeps some of the value circulating in your local area. So you can use, um, you know, the purchasing power, as, as Peter mentioned, you know, these are billion pound budgets and sometimes more, actually not at district council level, but at, but at top tier level, we're talking about over a billion pounds of, of public money in many many cases and retaining that value locally means that you can recycle public funds to help people who are growing up in poverty in your area through you know insisting on apprenticeships and local procurement and local apprenticeships um, by insisting on things like good quality flexible working that helps people take account of their caring responsibilities for children or ill relatives or or or, or what have you it allows you to use your budget not just as a means but as an end i'd like to come on to uh the Haringey council and uh, and what has been happening there uh, recently one of the things that i keep seeing in relation to this from people defending the right of the nec to essentially oppose the policy of Haringey Council is that you can't both oppose what the NEC have done uh, in the past few weeks and at the same time think that Neil Kinnock's 1985 speech about a Labour Council and support that and, th- and, and you can't hold those two positions simultaneously. I was just wondering what you kind of make of that distinction. But it's just rubbish, isn't it? Because what, <laughs> <laughs> what Liverpool Council were doing in the 80s was illegal. Haringey haven't done anything illegal. I, I think more worryingly um, about the NEC's position on Haringey is it's seeking to elevate unelected candidates above elected councillors. And I don't understand how that is democratic at all. And in fact, that would be requiring officers at Haringey Council to act illegally if they knew they were listening to unelected candidates, not the elected councillors. I mean, it, it's just an astonishing position for the Labour Party to have got itself into. And so do you think that there is a lot of sympathy within local government? This this letter that was uh, released over the weekend, obviously, I think had more than half of uh, Labour leaders of council signed it. But do you think there's an even wider sympathy than, than that? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you look when the letter was published yesterday, the number of tweets and retweets of that letter shows that this is something that Labour councillors up and down the country care deeply about because it is a massive encroachment on our powers and our autonomy. We are a separate governing unit. We're not a subsidiary bit of the party liable to take over like a branch Labour Party or a CLP. We have governing powers independently established in law. And 
it's really, really, you know, when we stay the right side of the law, the NEC should not be seeking to administer that from the centre. I mean, not least because they can't run all of the councils that Labour <laughs> control. It is simply not possible to do that. It does seem to be an odd thing, Richard, about, about you know, devolution seemed to be on the agenda and now centralisation is, is back on the agenda. Well, I think it is. The, the opportunity of devolution is for different areas to do it the way they wish to and to try things differently in different areas, to have these areas where you can uh, pioneer things. Now, we could get into the rights and wrongs of the particular policy. I don't know it particularly. I don't live in Haringey. But I do know that the councillors are doing it with Labour values in heart, with the best interests of their council, with two, three, four hands tied behind their back because of what George Osborne has done to them with the cuts to local government, but with a pressing need to try and improve social housing and the housing provision in one of London's inner boroughs. And if our assumption is that we'll take the online hysteria about it and have a discussion by who should be our most informed people in the Labour Party on the NEC without a paper, notice the discussion or asking the council in question to come and account for itself, it's ridiculous. So even if you thought it was the role of the Labour Party, I think Sarah and I agree that it probably isn't to somehow interfere in the local governance of these councils, this is surely the worst possible way they could have done it and doesn't show any respect, which was Peter's point, to somebody who has run the council brilliantly, taken it over at its absolute depths and has taken it to a point in which it has the fastest improving schools in the country. And that doesn't seem comradely. I just want to add to that, which was a point that wasn't picked up in the letter and hasn't been picked up in in a lot of the commentary. Labour rightly takes a lot of pride from its work on gender representation, both through the party structures and in Parliament. Women in leadership positions in local government are not included in that. And actually, the party's record there is woeful. It is absolutely appalling for the NEC to attack one of um, Labour's leading women leaders in this way is also counter to Labour's aims and values. Were there any other points of the interview with uh, Peter that you wanted to kind of get stuck into a bit more, Richard? I suppose one I didn't get to explore, but I know Sarah's got experience of this and Andy Burnham's got these kind of unique powers as mayor in Manchester, is he called about further integration of health and social care and the work that councils can do there. And often the sense is a kind of arbitrary divide of where the health service ends and local government picks up and the people who therefore do the work are on different pay rates and have different rights and entitlements, aren't often paid for the travel between their appointments, but these are, for the user of public services, arbitrary divides, um, but very necessary levels of provision. So I don't know what your experience is that, Sarah, and whether are Labour councils around the country doing interesting stuff on this? There's a lot of interesting examples on this and health working much more closely with local authorities. Again, it's a bit of a horses for courses approach. What works in Camden doesn't necessarily work in Carlisle and and vice versa. And so you need to look at what's going on where you are. So Richard in Islington did some very interesting stuff with the Whitting actually with Claire as well in Haringey with the with the Whittington and paying people by the via the outcome rather than the output. So rather than paying for a hip replacement, paying for getting someone to walk again, which Sounds common sense when you put it like that, but actually traditionally hasn't been the way that the health service uh, has worked. There's lots of interesting stuff, again, going on in Labour councils up and down the country. One of the things that um, really, uh, I think, sparked that was work with Unison on the Ethical Care Charter and that really transforming wages and conditions for, for care workers. And this is going back quite a few years now, has 
made councils relook at how we use those staff that are going into people's homes and again how we can help largely women largely low-skilled women skill up better and therefore be worth more be worth a higher pay rate and provide better services for elderly people and all around the country that's actually helped get people out of hospital sooner it doesn't accommodate the capacity gap so where there have been massive cuts to adult social care local authorities are struggling to get people out of hospital in time and that was in part contributing contributed to the winter um, winter nhs crisis i think one of the things that we need to be honest about as Labour politicians, and of course we all love the NHS, is the bits of the public sector that haven't been challenged. You know, Peter described it as fat. I wouldn't use that word, but local government has been challenged to the bone about what it can do with 40, 50, 60% fewer resources than they had in 2010. And some parts of the public sector just haven't been challenged to the same degree. And while, you know, I abhor the cuts and have campaigned against them since 2010, actually that scale of cut does force you to think innovatively and I wouldn't advocate I'm not advocating that to the NH, for the NHS at all but there needs to be an injection of forcing in more innovative thinking in the NHS I think one of the problems and why it doesn't happen is because they are now in such a bind financially they're simply running to catch up all the time and can't quite get you know can't quite back get back to a state where they can think about what how can we integrate services better how can we do things differently you know, and all of those, and all of those things. There's no panacea, but I think local government could be a much greater part of the solution to our NHS crisis. The other thing, Sarah, that I was thinking off the back of the conversation with Peter, but had come from uh, Hammersmith and Fulham Council, and what Steve Cowan is doing there is that you know directly getting themselves involved in the big national debate of what does Brexit look yeah. like and how do people sign off, whichever deal Theresa May comes back with. How do you think that Labour government can take a role in that going forward? So Nick Forbes, leader of the LGA Labour Group and leader of uh, Newcastle City Council, has led work on this. The LGA Resources Board, of which I'm a member, um, has had a specific working group uh, on on Brexit. And I think, you know, local government and local communities are going to be hugely impacted when those grants go and when the markets go and, uh, and all the rest of it. So we absolutely rightly have a real, real voice in this. I I think this is something where local government can work very strongly, you know, Labour councils, councillors in local government can work very strongly with the membership and really make our voices felt through the structures of, of the party. You know, we don't really want to have big arguments about Brexit and the right approach in public. I think we need to try and, you know, promote a united front. But I think the membership should privately and councillors should privately be telling their MPs what they want from Brexit and we should be using our might to do it. And if some more public stances like motions from from councils can help with that, then I think that's, you know, all more power to our elbow. The membership supports membership of the European Union. The membership supports soft Brexit if we're not going to stay in the European Union and we need to work together. And Progress's event at the LGA Labour Group conference is with Heidi Alexander, the co-chair of the uh, Labour campaign for the single market. And it has got a number of council leaders who are talking about how their communities need Britain to stay in the single market in the customs union. Well, with that shameless self-promotion, I think we probably (laughs) need to wrap up that conversation there. But thanks, Sarah, so much for joining us. And do stick with us for the political pub quiz question next. Each week, Connor Pope asks a political pub quiz question and we announce the answer to the question on the 
Friday podcast. Uh, first of all, before I do this week's question, I just want to do a mea culpa. I forgot to announce the winner of last week's mug, uh, the Progress mug, which we give away to the correct answer. Uh, Alex Greer won last week's, uh, got the, last week's question right, and we'll be making sure that a mug is in the post to you this week. Well done, Alex. So before people apply for this one, what is the question? So uh, Zenit St. Petersburg is a football team in Russia, and one of their players is the son of a current a shadow cabinet member and I want to know which shadow cabinet minister's son Ooh. plays for Zenit St. Petersburg FC I don't know this one Alison will be sad that she is missing the podcast <laughs> this week because it's a football related question and she always likes all things football and probably knows the answer to it but we won't we won't obviously give away the answer now um, how can people get, get their answer in they can tweet me at Connor Pope or send it by an email to office at progressonline.org UK. And you can't win a mug if you don't get the answer in. Exactly. That is all we've got time for this week. Thank you for listening. Do leave a message or a comment or a question that we will answer on Friday's show. Uh, send it to officeofprogressonline.org.uk or leave a comment on iTunes. And big thanks to having Sarah Hayward, who is here with us, recording the podcast, and Peter John, who did the interview with us this week ahead of the LGA Labour Group Conference. Those of you who are going, have a great time. I will be there, so will others, from Progress and the Progressive family. Uh, We look forward to that and enjoy the podcast this week. been listening to the progressive britain podcast the music was when in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks to the brilliant caroline crampton who produced this podcast